Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Voice Equals Power podcast, where we explore the big question, how does an artist find their voice? I am your host, Nicholas Krolak. If you like what you hear today, you can keep up to date with my travels through Sonic Space and my website, nicholaskrolak.com, or on Instagram at nicholas underscore Krolak. Today's episode is brought to you by Riccardi's Violin Shop. I've been bringing my basses to Rob Riccardi for years, from basic setups, rehairing bows, and gluing seams, to the major overhaul he recently did on my carved bass. Rob has always kept my basses in great shape and sounding their best. Located in South Jersey, a stone's throw away from Philadelphia, is an added bonus that will save you time and money for all your string repair needs. Check them out at RiccardiViolinShop.com. My guest today is Haley Brunell, trombonist, vocalist, and educator based in Philadelphia. At the age of 12, she began performing throughout New England with her father, Dave Brunell. Now she has performed at prestigious venues around the world, independently having played with artists such as Sherry Maracle and the Diva Jazz Orchestra, Ingrid Jensen, Anat Cohen, Pell, and Charles Neville. Haley is currently on faculty at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia and works independently as a guest clinician to bring jazz education to classrooms throughout the city. This year has also marked her debut as a leader with two single releases of her arrangements of the standards Easy to Love and Orange Colored Sky. Haley Brunell, thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Of course. Thank you for, for thinking of me. Not not a problem. Um, I start episodes a lot with um, talking about uh, how we met. And I, I'm not super sure. Did we meet at Temple? That's. I'm really happy that you're not confident as well because I'm pretty sure it was Temple. But I can't yeah. remember like a moment where we shook hands and did the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I I kind of think it was Temple, and I remember doing. I remember, I remember we played a gig at uh at um at the the wine the wine bar that you were running. Yes, you were running the gig oh. at the on Passyunk. Yes, Vin Cafe. It is no longer yeah. open, but yeah, I I remember having you on that gig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I, oftentimes, I don't. Uh, neither of us remember how we met. I just think it's like a fun exercise. Yeah, to, I uh, uh, <laughs> I definitely remember just like seeing you as a vague figure on like the second floor of Presser before we actually <laughs> knew each other, though. <laughs> I I remember at um at graduation from Temple, like lining up. I don't know if we graduated at the same time. I I can't really remember, but I remember like lining up in like the like the catacombs of some mm-hmm. building, 
and just looking around and being like, I don't know like 90% of these people. I've like, <laughs> not only do I not know them, I've never seen them before. <laughs> yeah. That sounds you know? super accurate. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, so you are a, um, vocalist and trombonist. Correct. And, um, I'm pretty, um, obsessed with, with, um, with brass instruments. I don't play any brass instruments, but I, I think they're super fascinating. And, um, could you, could you talk a little bit about, uh, the connection in your mind between, uh, playing a, a brass instrument and, and singing? Sure. Well, it's actually funny because I didn't plan this, but I think I've heard or read before that people say that trombone is the instrument that is the second closest to the human voice. Um, the first of which being cello is what I've heard people argue. Um, I didn't plan that, but, uh, there's certain things about brass instruments. You have to, since it's a, a partial system and you only have, um, you know, on trombone seven positions, um, you have to be able to really accurately hear what note you're trying to, to play. Um, so having the ability to replicate pitch from a young age was really helpful for me as a developing uh, brass player or, you know, or to match pitch, I should say, while singing. Um, but yeah, the, pretty much the best brass players I know um, are able to, to sing at least vaguely pretty much anything they could play because you have to hear everything so vividly in your head in order for it to come out accurately. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 that's why I, I, um, I feel like such a connection to, uh, specifically trumpet, mm -hmm. um, as, as a bass player, I really like transcribing trumpet solos because I feel like, uh, the range, despite, you know, despite the octave difference, the range of the trumpet and the upright bass are pretty similar. Right. And, and the, um, they're both instruments where you can't, there's like no button mashing. You know what I mean? You can't yeah. just like play patterns, uh, haphazardly. It's like you, you gotta, you gotta hear it. So totally. Um, did, um, you started music pretty early, correct? Yeah. Um, my, my dad is a musician, so he's a, a piano mm -hmm. player and a singer and he, he's been playing out, you know, as long as I could remember, um, usually it's solo gigs, like, bar lounge sort of stuff like Sinatra or you know um that sort of thing um so I would go to his gigs as a kid and I started sitting in with him when I was you know like a cute little kid and I'd sing like a Nat King Cole song or something um and I started like my parents were really into music so I started piano lessons and guitar and violin and then trombone and drums and all this stuff when I was a kid um but uh, when I was 12, I started gigging out with my dad. Um, so we would, you know, play in uh, restaurants or dive bars or whatever gigs he would have. He kind of turned it into a duo act um, for a long time. So started the professional music thing pretty young. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. I, I, um, I'm very interested in, in players that started early because uh, I started very late. And I, I like, I like to hear, um, like what, what are, what were some of like the, like early, 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 um, kind of like uh, light bulb moments where you're like, whoa, okay, that clicked. And like around what age, huh. uh, did those happen? Like, like, uh, for example, like, um, I talked to, uh, you know, people who start real early and 
Like they don't remember like learning how to read music, you know? I definitely remember learning how to read music cool. because I yeah. um, <laughs> I used to use rely on my ears so heavily. Um, mm. I even remember in, in mm -hmm. piano lessons as a kid, I used to always um, ask my piano teacher to play things first. And then I would like figure it out without actually learning how to read music until finally mm -hmm. they sat my parents down and said, here's note card or the flash cards. I'm not going to play things for her anymore. Like this, this has gone on too long. <laughs> <laughs> um, so actually reading music for me, it's so funny because um, a lot of the jazz gigs, especially I play now are reading gigs at this point. And I'm, you know, mm -hmm. that's something I feel very competent at c compared to some other things. Um, but growing up, uh, I was not a, a strong reader until I probably was in uh, maybe fifth or sixth grade. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's interesting because that's that's kind of how I I uh, I know you as as um, you know playing in, in big band situations with you. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Uh, we did. What was that? What was that big band thing that we did kind of recently? Um. Were you on a Jamal thing? Yes, yes. The that's, Jamal's. Yeah. It was was that the last one? Uh, Jamal Jones. Um, yeah, that sounds that sounds the, right to at me. At the London that's Grill. Like, which one? Sorry. The, was it like the, their last performance at the London Grill? Yeah, probably. I mean, I yeah, I've been. I, I was definitely there. I, I know we played there. I don't remember if it was the last one or not. I don't. Mm -hmm. That was a while ago. Wow. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it, that's it's so funny how that worked because my my dad doesn't really read music. He has a, is an amazing ear player. He can just mm. hear something or play something that he heard like thirty years ago and just play it accurately. Um, so. It was emphasized by my teachers, but then I would always see my dad and say, "Well, he can do it, you know." <laughs> that, that's really interesting. It, it it it's it's I find I'm fascinated by like the like there's so many uh, roads one can take to get to, you know, uh, uh, to where they're at now, you know. Yeah, and, uh, I, I could actually talk about the that forever because I, I teach uh, beginning band part-time. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm responsible for starting students on their first instrument most of the time. Yeah. Um, and I usually, the first year of playing, I like to teach with minimal reading. I like teaching oral skills um, the first year mm. almost primarily. Mm, so so could you could you uh, uh, take us through like, a, a, like an example of of what, how you would uh, navigate a, f a f first student and yeah, um, maybe, maybe how you would transition from the ear to the reading? Yeah, definitely. Um, I do a lot with, um, even from when they first start instruments, um, after we like, <laughs> you learn the first note and then the next note we sing it and try to identify if it's going, if it's higher or lower, up or down. So I try to solidify that really early. Um, and then, any melody we learn starts from like, you know, three note melodies. Um, I try to piece it together with um, phrase coupling to start, which is uh, just taking very small parts of the melody and trying to play it and see if they can duplicate it. Maybe they'll get the general idea. And if not, we'll go back and we try it in small sections. Um, and usually by the end of the year, we're, we're, we're able to, they're able to pretty easily identify, like if I do something diatonic to like, you know, maybe the the uh b flat uh, between b flat and f on the in the b flat uh, major scale um they're able to pretty easily uh recreate it on their instruments um but then the transition 
usually I, I actually like doing it by giving them songs that they already can play mm-hmm. on their instrument that they've figured out by ear and then put the page in front of them. And it's kind of like learning a language. Um, actually, that's I don't know if you've talked to Andrew Carson. He just finished his math master's thesis at Temple for the uh, music ed master's program. Uh, he mm-hmm. had this whole uh, thesis about learning. Uh, well, his was specifically jazz improvisation and bebop. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm probably butchering this, but uh, as a language. But no, I really appreciate um, the idea of young music learners um, hearing vocabulary and being able to replicate things using oral skills and then putting something that they've already been familiar with um, mm-hmm. in the notation in front of them. And usually they can start identifying the notes as more than just symbols. They can see the patterns a little clearer when they already were mm-hmm. able to play something. Because that's something a lot of early learners will do is kind of look at notes uh, on the page as sort of disjointed symbols and not really connect their relationship. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's very interesting. Have you have you uh, worked with or um, or what are your thoughts about uh, some of like the sight reading apps? Uh, like with which what, what do you mean? I haven't really worked like, uh, with much. There's 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 one that I'm I'm kind of into that really helped me because like, um, uh, it took me a long time to learn how to read music. Um, because uh, similar to you, you know, your strength was ear. My strength was like theory mm-hmm. and patterns. And I relied real heavy on that for a long time and, and got away with it, <laughs> you know, for a long time. And, um, you know, you, when you, when that, whenever you do that with anything, it comes to a point where like you can't get away with it anymore. If you want to get to that next thing, like you have to deal with the thing you've been putting off. And um, uh, for me, uh, it was it was reading. And uh, one of the things that really helped me was um, there's a sight reading app. I can't remember the name. I think it's Sight Reading Machine or oh, something like that. Oh, you know, I, I, I remember. It, I know what that is. I used that in high school choir, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it really helped me um, not stop all the time. Yeah. Cause I would stop all the time. Every time I, I messed up, I would, you know, stop and then go back and like fix it. And then, right. But you can't do that in real life. And that's something at least teaching in a, in a, in a band setting that kids start to get that a little earlier. Cause they start seeing, Oh, if I mess up, the rest of the band keeps going. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a little, a little easier than with the solo practicing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that, that was just like a, a, a kind of, incremental step for me to to help me like get a little more confidence and then and then go back into you know start saying yes to to harder reading gigs and mm-hmm. and get thrown into that that kind of thing um you do a lot of of teaching um you are also uh you also teach at uarts correct yes I, this uh, past year was my first year with them very cool could you, could you talk a little bit about uh about that because that's very that's very different than teaching uh beginner band (laughs) beginner students yeah yeah um no i got into it originally um in this past fall uh there there was a student-run ensemble that uh or was intended originally on being student-run um that was for um all all female identifying students um called the fem ensemble and um it was decided that they wanted the university and the students wanted it to be curricular and they needed a coach 
Um, I think they asked a couple people, um, and it was, you know, in Philly, as you're probably aware, there aren't that many female jazz instrumentalists. Mm -hmm. um, and it was an instrumental ensemble. Um, so I had a couple of the UART students that had been going to my jam in Fishtown at uh, Sherry Maracle's former venue, Drummers. Um, and they recommended that I, they, I inter or Micah would interview me. But uh, yeah, so I started just um, coaching the Femme Ensemble, um, which was uh, an amazing time. But then in the spring, um, I actually this past semester taught two sections of the uh, jazz, uh, vocal jazz improv two. It's the the last of the improv sequence for jazz vocalists. Um, that was really cool. That's something that I've been really working on a lot as uh, an educator um, is how to really effectively teach um, vocal improvisation in a way that sort of blends vocal and some instrumental pedagogy because sometimes they can be overly separated when they don't necessarily have to be. But mm. that's what I've been working on at UArts. Very cool. Did, did um, uh, how do you approach uh, working with with more experienced students? It's funny. Um, I feel like I made the mistake of when I got there of almost thinking, oh, well, they're really experienced, so there are certain things that it will be like an insult to talk about, <laughs> or like uh -huh. I don't want to go back too far. But um, really, a lot of the things that you would think about when you teach beginners it's even when someone's really experienced everyone learns in different ways and has different things that different backgrounds are coming from so my main approach was um my first assignment I gave my my vocalists was to um, send me just an oral transcription in any genre of something they feel that they excel at um mm -hmm. so I got people singing like um you know guitar solos on so, like some crazy I'm, I'm trying to remember there was a really funny one that I got that I was like, damn, you did a really good job. I never would have expected this. Um, <laughs> you know, and some that did jazz, but a lot that did R&B or, you know, some pop stuff. Um, so the first thing I've been trying to do is like sort of coming from a place of like, yes, it's a jazz improv class, but I want to be able to take whatever genre people are actually interested in, if it's not jazz primarily or straight ahead jazz in this case, mm -hmm. um, and sort of find a way to branch between uh, jazz improvisation and some other genres. So that was the mm -hmm. first approach for people that are already experienced is figuring out what they are experienced in and trying to, and how they learn. Um, mm -hmm. But I do a lot with uh, my, my uh, approach to vocal improvisation and teaching it um, to students that might not have done it as much, even to their experienced vocalists, has a lot to do with um, uh, approaching it from mel melodic uh, manipulation and rhythmic manipulation of a melody. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually just submitted for the, the Gen Conference, so maybe I'll be able to teach this at 20, uh, 2021 Gen. Um, Very cool. But uh, yeah, so we did a lot with learning standards and then coming from a place of pure melody in terms of improvisation. And it's something that most students were able to do um, pretty well from the start because a lot with that is um, just sort of giving students confidence with improvisation, even if they're at a high level, sometimes when you're put in a classroom setting, that's something that's like the first inhibitor is confidence and being comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so sort of starting from a place of melody and then branching into um, harmony and theoretical studies is sort of how I approach it with them. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer to a simple question. That's all right. This is all about uh, long-windedness long and... Um and jumping around. Lovely. <laughs> My favorite. Uh, you mentioned uh, Sherry Maracle before. Um, 
And you you played with with her uh, very famous uh, group, the Diva Jazz uh, Orchestra. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your experiences uh, with them and also what they are for people who uh, may not know? Sure. Um, Diva Jazz Orchestra was uh, started uh, in the 90s um, with a Sherry and um, founder Stanley Kay um, to be an all-female big band uh, in some of the best jazz musicians you know, around now, I've played with them. Uh, Ingrid Jensen, Anat Cohen um, were, were core members of the band. Tanya Darby, um, yeah, and I know you you interviewed Alexa. I saw. I did. Um, yeah. Yeah. Alexa yes. and I actually we were on the the same first diva gig. I think at the Deerhead Inn. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. Um, oh, the Deerhead's such a great place. That it's so funny because my only gig there has been with a big band, which is super <laughs> weird. Uh, so has mine. My, um, I, yeah, I, I, I sub a, a bunch with the um, with uh, Matt Vasilishin's Vass- band, mm-hmm. um, which is like the I guess the uh, new incarnation of the Phil Woods big band. Oh, gotcha. And uh, but yeah, it's 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 kind of a, a silly situation being in that small of a place with a big band. Yeah, but, you feel like you're like a mile away from the piano player. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> But, uh, yeah. my, my apologies uh continue oh no but uh, so that's that's what diva is um t- today uh, or where it stemmed from and it's you know still going on and they've traveled the world and recorded a bunch um but actually can i tell you how i got my first gig with them it's a really funny story yeah please do um, please at least do. it's it's funny to me i don't know it's it's one of those things looking back i was like oh my god i never would have done that now thank god i didn't know any better um <laughs> there was a, a drummer in my that worked in around my hometown um and uh, he uh, had mentioned that he he knew this person, Sherry Miracle, and I had never heard of Diva. This is when I was 18 or 19. Um, and I had never heard of Diva or Sherry, and he said, you know, I, I know this person, and I'm going to give you their email. You should send them an email. Like, they're always looking for, for subs for their all-female big band. You should do that. And I was like a freshman in college. And I just sent an email to to Sherry, saying like hi my name is Haley Brunell I'm a trombone player and I would love to play with the- <laughs> like <laughs> it was just one of those things like looking back I'm like oh my god I can't believe I did that but um but no sure enough like I I think I you know I heard back right away from Sherry or maybe it was Jamie Dauber um a trumpet player in the band that does uh managing st- uh, you know stuff for them but uh <laughs> heard back like almost immediately with the sort like f- I think the first email I got was like thanks for reaching out we'll let you know and it was just very nice um mm-hmm. and then I, I found and then like I feel like it was like two weeks later I get an email from Jamie saying hey we have a gig coming up um at the Deerhead Inn like can you can you play this <laughs> and I was just like what on earth and turns out they had contacted um my trombone teacher at the time Mark Patterson because Sherry knew him from probably the Pops, uh, I assume, New York Pops. Um, and they had contacted Terrell. Um, so they, I had a couple inadvertent references, I guess. Nice. Um, but yeah, and I, I played my first gig with them just from an email of like an 18 or 19-year-old saying like, hello, Dr. Miracle. It's so nice. To <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, no, and I've, I've played with them on and off. I, you know, I, I, I sub for... Uh, uh, either Sarah Giacovino or uh, Jen Krupa, um, who are the, uh, it's only a three trombone section, two tenors and a bass in that band. But yeah, I've played at uh, Dizzy's with them and the Kennedy Center. 
um, the Lake George Jazz Fest, some some cool places. I, I did a two-month run of a show with a tap dancer Maurice Hines in Philly mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago with them um, called Tapping Through Life, which is like a retrospective of, of his life. Um, but yeah, Diva is definitely the band that has inspired me to improve the most. Sherry is one of, if not the best band leader I have ever experienced in how she motivates a band and how she gets a band to sound. Yeah. I've, I've, she's actually, um, um, I really, I've been trying to, trying to get her on the show, uh, for a while. Um, the stars have not aligned yet. Um, she, she just moved in. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, she's, I know. Been, she's been a little, little crazy. I'm sure. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't want to uh just, you know, add add another thing on her plate, but she will be on the show at some point. Awesome. Um, She'll have some great stories. Oh, uh, I'm I'm sure. I've I've only hung out with her a couple times, but every time I'm I'm like, you need to write a book, you know? Like um, not only of of stories, but also just like how to navigate a life of jazz, you know? Totally. Oh. Um yeah, she is one of the the most swinging drummers you will ever experience. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, I, I had um, one of my favorite gigs of this past year, if not my favorite, was uh, I played a just a a quartet gig with her and Joe Plowman and Silas Silas Irvine, mm-hmm. who usually they're in my you know quartet or whatever. And Sherry or Sherry absolutely loves them, so we got a gig together at just some community center up in Yardley, but. Oh gosh, it was fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That sounds like a super, super swinging band. It, it really was. It was definitely. I, I, I love Sherry's one of the nicest people, and I am. When she's a friend, but I still feel like I fangirl her a little bit, like in my head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Just um. I just want to pivot back to your story about uh, how you got, um, uh, got your first gig with the diva or jazz orchestra um and how you're saying that like you got it just through you know just sending out an email just like brazenly or maybe not brazenly it's not the right word but mm-hmm. just um just you know sending it sending it out and um i feel like over time we 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 all uh get more self-conscious about doing things like that and like, right. it becomes harder to just just reach out but th- that's like a thing i've been i've been working on a lot this past uh, maybe like 2 years just like just cold calling reaching out to people just you know you never know you know and you're right and i i i i'm hearing myself you know my first reaction was oh i would never do this and then i'm kind of investigating that uh, idea i'm like why why wouldn't i i'm definitely more yeah. qualified now than i was then <laughs> yeah it's this this past year i i wrote to um about 230 jazz festivals awesome just to, just to like you know this is me this is my stuff you know i didn't expect to get any anything um and uh you know i i got a few very few still but my name's out there to somebody who makes a decision, you know, and actually the ones I got are all canceled now, but of course, <laughs> that, <laughs> but it, I felt like it was, it was a pretty valuable uh, experience of just 
Like there are people out there who make decisions. It's not like this nebulous, right? Like, you know, mystical thing. It's like, there are people that are, are the gatekeepers that make these decisions and you can find out who they are and you can find out how to contact them. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like that, that's that's part of the game yeah you know so, i feel like that's something especially like coming out of of college i feel like sometimes there feels like there can be a stigma against uh certain types of self-promotion mm-hmm. um in the jazz world like where in other genres i feel like and i, I i'm not an expert in other genres <laughs> nor in jazz but um that's more acceptable and there's something maybe about how like the roots of our music started in terms of authenticity um that maybe some people feel like we we aren't able to reach out in the same way or self-promote in the same way without losing some of that authenticity that's something that i've been trying to think about and think about what authenticity really means yeah that that that's a i think that's a very worthwhile investigation because you know um yeah, I, f- I feel like just s- like waiting for like the the jazz the jazz gods to bestow <laughs> your 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 opportunity to you like that could take a long time, you know. The, the jazz and, gods are not kind. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not benevolent. And and I feel like I feel like from from doing this podcast a lot and like talking to people, like I hear stories like the one you told a lot right you know people just being like well i just went up to this person and was just like hey this is this is me and this is what i do and then you know they get a call a year two years later or maybe the next day you know yeah and then well Um, the follow-up was after i got the email um was getting a google drive of an insane amount of music and just for like a week straight practicing every single thing in the book and i remember even um like when I, i asked sherry like a couple years later and she might not even remember this um but sort of like the hey why did you keep calling me i feel like i you know and i was i was like really a kid then um mm-hmm. you know I, I i feel like i grew into being able to play with them you know decently well after a while but i remember she said they have this arrangement of, of 76 trombones actually mm-hmm. from the music man <laughs> it's a trombone feature and it's really fun i i, I do that's one thing I value about that band is it's swinging, it's musical, but they have so much fun and the arrangements are fun and just, ah, oh, it's, it's mm-hmm. great. It doesn't take itself too seriously, just the right amount. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and I remember Sherry said, oh yeah, you, you, you killed the 76 trombone thing. You were, you played so loud. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, and I was like, wow, awesome. <laughs> Cause I, I remember I, I sat at home practicing that for, days and yeah. days as soon as I, I i i looked through the entire book and made sure i could play every single thing in the book yeah yeah that I, f- I feel like that putting that kind of that kind of homework in um i feel like a lot of uh a lot of people and you know younger younger players i mean i'm speaking from my experience like when i was younger i thought that people would just show up Right. And they could just just do it. And you know, that is a a part of it, but a a lot of it is like um like what you did just just shedding the thing, like you got the call for the thing and you're just shedding it. Yeah, and that's something I I've, I've actually had to check myself on because I feel like again, 
you know, once you start seeing other musicians that you assume or you have this idea in your head that they're not preparing and they're just going in cold, you feel like sometimes like, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. I actually mm -hmm. had a, <laughs> it was a, I was subbing for like a high school pit like two years ago of Anything Goes. And I remember being mm -hmm. like, oh, I've heard this music. I played this in high school or I've heard this before. I, you know, and I went in and I totally messed up a big thing and anything goes for like a high school production. I remember thinking like, wow, what was my excuse mm -hmm. for not preparing for this? So I, that was, that was a big wake up for me was, I remember I started drifting a little too far in the not preparing direction in, you know, mid late college, um, cause of perceived pressure around me to just be able to do things. It's not worth it to, if you have time to not prepare, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, so I want to pivot a little bit to, um, female instrumentalists in jazz. Okay. And, um, you were on a panel for the Jazz Philadelphia, um, the last summit that they did in, is that 2019? Correct. Yeah. And, um, you were, you were your panel was, was uh, talking about women in jazz and I guess my question is where, where do you, where do you feel we, we stand at this, this moment? Um, it's interesting. Um, and people have a lot of different opinions on this, which I'm sure, I don't know if you were at the panel, if you heard anything from it, but uh, there were, even different opinions between like panelists um, mm -hmm. on this because they're, I mean, things have gotten better than they were in, you know, even the eighties or nineties, I would say, but I wasn't really there. So it's again, hard for me to give something concrete on that in terms of numbers though. I think there are more female musicians out there, instrumentalists out there. Sorry, I should edit. Um, that are, you know, getting work and more people that are more accepting but at the same time, there's uh, that sort of perception that things are getting better or fine now that sort of is, I, I, I feel like in a lot of ways we're, it's not that progress has halted, but people sometimes get too comfortable with the idea of, oh, there isn't, there shouldn't be sexism now. So we really don't mm -hmm. have to talk about it anymore. Um, but yeah, little, there's little things. Um, even, uh, yeah, like, I, I remember I, I did the Jazz Philadelphia just interviewed me for they put out the hometown heroes thing that you also did. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember seeing like, uh, you know, I had a couple of people that shared it and a lot of comments under it. Like were just saying like, wow, she looks beautiful. <laughs> 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 <And> like <laughs> Seeing that and being like, oh, OK, it's fine. Wouldn't see that on like, you know. <laughs> someone like I'm um, uh, someone else's interview like I'm just picturing like Terrell's interview and someone commenting <laughs> so handsome <laughs> yeah um but no so there's those little things people do that um in the musical world or or not that are sort of perceived as innocuous but are you know treating female instrumentalists um differently and in, in in some ways just not putting out the perception that we're not taken as seriously um mm -hmm. You know, there's still also, especially in Philly, um, the issue of female instrumentalists also being seen as, you know, a novelty um, at some times because they kind of are 
inherently. Um, I remember talking to someone about jam sessions before, um, especially as mm-hmm. like a younger female instrumentalist when I was in college and didn't really know people as much. I started experiencing this thing where people would tell me at jams like, oh, well, if you, you know, mess up a chorus or, you know, don't really know a tune that well, it's not a huge deal. Like people will just tune you out and not listen anyway. But I started having this feeling that I would start soloing and there would be eyes. And at first I thought I was being paranoid. And then I started noticing it with some other female instrumentalists too, where it's like almost like people tend to direct more attention of like, oh, well, we really have to judge if she's killing or not right now. Hmm. And again, it could be a perceived thing or an anxious thing, but um, when the numbers are so low, sometimes there feels like there's some extra pressure instead of just making music that your career has to be a a social stance, which in some ways it does. Um, So that's something now that I think male instrumentalists don't think about as um, female instrumentalists, even the most killing ones, like their career in some ways can never just be about the music to everyone or like every other musician. It's always like, hmm. it's about music and gender, even if they're playing just as well or better than male instrumentalists. It's hmm. like, we don't have the luxury to separate gender sometimes, which sort of stinks. I was actually talking to Sherry about uh, leading the, the femme, the, the band at UArts. Um, And the idea of an all-female band nowadays is interesting because you get some people that don't really understand. I remember one time, and I I will never mention the name because they're actually someone I respect a lot that just said a very misguided comment in the Philly scene. But uh, when I started playing with Diva and I was really excited and someone said, I just don't get it. Why do they have to have an all-female band? Like, why why can't they just have, like, men and women playing together, like, equally? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like... You know what? You're right. Why didn't we think of that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But no, and sort of talking to Sherry about one thing that's really important to remember, especially like I get calls, I'd say at least 25% of calls I get from um, non non, uh, musicians that are just, you know, someone that's booking a venue or a festival or an event. um, At least 25% of calls I get are specifically someone looking for all female or female led ensembles. Mm. And it's a weird call to get because you appreciate that someone is making the effort. Um, but at the same time, it can feel a little invalidating for you as an artist, um, knowing that the primary, primary reason you were called was because was of your gender. And also, um, there's pressure sometimes to hire an all-female band for things, when ne- especially in Philly. Sometimes I can't get the players that I want to get based on gender alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I've talked to Sherry about this a lot. Like in Diva, I've played Diva gigs with uh, Nick Marchione before uh, for uh, the lead trumpet in the Vanguard. Because mm-hmm. Sherry says, oh, well, I call my top calls. If no one can do it, I'm not going to call someone that can't play lead trumpet. I'm going to call someone that can read the book and do it well. Um, so that's something right now that I feel like, especially people that are trying to go out of their way to book female artists, you're not doing anyone any favors by booking someone that can't play the gig for the sake of someone being a woman. There are Mm. women that can play their asses off and people have to go out of their way to find them and not just find someone for the sake of like tokenism, Mm. which is Uh, a conversation I've had a lot. Oh, sorry. It's a conversation I've had a lot with people trying to book in Philly, especially for gigs that don't pay that well is Mm -hmm. 
I actually just had this conversation saying they wanted me to book a like a 10 piece all female brass band for for and it wasn't for for great money and I told them I'm like I can book you a 10 piece band of people from a variety of genders that will do well or I can book you a four piece band of people that of of an all female band <laughs> cuz I have to mm-hmm. you know find people that um, might need a little more cash or have to come from farther yeah so anyway i just said a whole lot i don't i hope some of it made sense yeah absolutely thank you for 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 talking about that um one of the 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 comments from the panel at the at the jazz um uh philadelphia um at your panel there um i can't remember who said it but it's it's been it it's it uh been rolling around my mind ever since and uh the the rhetorical question was what would jazz sound like without the patriarchy (laughs) and you know which we we can't know um but how how do you you think about say say in 20 20 years or so um, all the efforts to increase the number of female instrumentalists pay off, and we have like a relatively um, uh, equal numbers of of um, of instrumentalists. How do, how do you think that would would change jazz? Would it change jazz? Um, how, how do you how do you think about that? Well. It'll only get better if you have the maximum amount of people that are, you know, good players and qualified to play the gigs, comfortable on the gigs. Mm-hmm. That's something I remember. There's a bass player I, I played a gig with in D.C. that just told me flat out, I don't take gigs if from like, you know, male band leaders unless I I know people in the band and I know that I like playing with them. It's not worth it for me anymore because I've had too many gigs with great people that make me feel totally uncomfortable and I can't play my best. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it'll only get better in terms of like, if everyone can truly feel comfortable on a bandstand, although there are way more reasons besides gender to feel uncomfortable on a bandstand. Yeah. Um, but in that way, it'll improve. Um, I don't think anything will change in terms of how music is approached because I, I've heard the notion before people are, you know, people have said to me like, wow, it's great to hear a woman on that horn, you just approach it with such sensitivity or something like that. <laughs> um, and it's like, did you just hear me? I was just playing like a really disgusting blues song. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. not sensitive. <laughs> um, but yeah, th- yeah, so there's some of that that people like, I feel like some people have that notion of like, if oh, if women had, had their way, then jazz would they, would, they would think about every note and plan everything in a way that men just can't. I'm like, no, that's bullshit. Everyone approaches things differently. Yeah, I, I've heard that a bunch too. And, <laughs> um, and, I, I, and I think about like how, how the, how like, you know, jam sessions work and how like, how the coming up process works. And, you know, it like, it produces killing players you know mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't like uh you know produce sensitive women players and like <laughs> much you know what i mean like it just produces good players yeah 
Um, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I just, the, the one thing right now, especially with like, you know, jazz is something that currently exists mostly in academia um, mm-hmm. in terms of people that are like, you know, coming up or learn, you know, learning jazz. It um, right now happens mostly in college settings. Um, and it's something like college campuses don't have everything together in terms of like sexism and creating comfortable environments for women. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's that's something that that was something that always bothered me because I always heard people, um, you know, say and, you know, even from female musicians say, oh, well, if someone pisses you off on a gig or makes you uncomfortable. Sorry, I'm swearing. Is that OK? Yeah, go ahead. OK, cool. Um, then you don't take that gig anymore. You don't call that person. And sometimes it's that simple, depending on the gig. But in academia, there is no excuse. It's like you're mm-hmm. there to learn that you shouldn't have to be have to worry about this stuff when there's an administration that's supposed to be preventing it. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to do? Not take the class? Exactly. I was actually, um, have to do? I, I had an yeah. issue with one, one student in, in college that was like a, a pretty, pretty bad issue of, uh, you know, harassment. And I was mm-hmm. told by um, in, in, a, a member of administration. And I actually, I said this in the panel too. I remember this is no, no secret anymore. Um, I was told by a high ranking member of an admi- the administration um, you know, that's terrible, but as a woman in this industry, you have to start learning how to deal with that yourself, mm. which maybe he was being realistic, but part of me was like, but I'm not in this industry yet. This is, this is yeah. school. <laughs> yeah, this is you're, school this is, and you're responsible for that. Yeah, it's like you're, you're responsible for helping to stop that so I don't have to deal with it later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, thank you for, for, uh, discussing that. I feel like that is, um, like you said, people get real complacent about, about talking about these things. Um, but it is an ongoing, uh, uh, process. And, um, uh, I I think it's a, a, a thing that, um, you know, I, I personally don't think about enough, you know, and I, I know a lot of, uh, um, my male colleagues like don't think about it enough either. So thanks for sharing uh, your thoughts and um, yeah, appreciate it. Of course. Um, uh, I would like to uh, move on a little bit to um, your last single single release, um, uh, "Easy to Love," the the great standard. Um, mm-hmm. You released that. That's a couple weeks ago now, I it's believe. Been, it's been over a month, which is crazy. This, um, okay. this, wow. past, this past time is relative. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, my whole, my whole like, sense of, like, time is so warped during yeah. this whole period. I'm, I'm finding myself, like, um, I'm, I'm going to, to visit some, some family um, in, in Massachusetts, and uh, I think I'm going to be there until I think I establish at least the, the 23rd. And mm-hmm. I'm like looking there being like, oh, that's like basically a few days. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> nothing's happening. <laughs> yeah. But um, you, could you talk about that that uh, release? And um, is is that your your uh, first release? Yeah, that is my first um, release, uh, you know, as with me as a band leader. Um, mm-hmm. Well, congratulations. Thank um, you. Uh, it, it sounds really great. Um, could you talk about um the the process um by oh, f- first of all talk about the like the the song and the arrangement 
a little bit, but also just like the general process of recording and, and getting it, getting it out there. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I decided about two years ago now that I really wanted to start doing my own album. Um, I, in general, just really love uh, singing, you know, great American songbook standards and really, really am from the school of like very straight ahead jazz. Um, and yeah, easy to love is I, I've always I always loved anything from well anything goes that musical that I totally messed up the book of for that High School Musical. <laughs> um, actually, and I think easy to love was that was in the uh, I want to say it was in like the 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 second uh, like the second time the Broadway show went up they like added that song in so I don't even think it was part of orig the original or maybe I have it backwards oh, wow. anyway. So some people think it's from Anything Goes and some people just know it as a Cole Porter tune from something else. Anyway. Um, no, I, I, part of me, I was between a few different tunes. I wanted to have a really up tune on this album that I'm releasing a couple singles from. The album will be out in, well, original plan was uh, September, but we'll see. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I love, um, I love scatting over really up tunes. I'm getting better at it, but it's so fun. And I really wanted an excuse to have... Um, uh, to trade with Andrew Carson, the trumpet player on that record. Um, and on that record, it's uh, myself, Andrew Carson on trumpet, Dan Monahan on drums. He has a solo on that track as well. Uh, Joe Plowman on bass and Silas Irvine on piano. Um, but yeah, I wanted an excuse to trade over a really up tune with Andrew Carson because it's one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah, and uh, I wanted a pretty simple arrangement. I have, you know, uh, an intro, um, yeah, that intro is killing. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's. Yeah. I yeah, I remember that was that came from me. Just I uh, some of the arrangements for that album I I did relatively last minute in comparison to the recording sessions where I knew what tunes I wanted to do, but I was still you know actually Orange Colored Sky, which is the next single I'm releasing um, this upcoming week. I wrote the it has a little like a little shout drum trading thing that I wrote the night before <laughs> um, the session. Yeah. So. Having having a deadline is the uh, and it's, is is a good thing. Well, and because I actually I feel like I wrote that in the stuff on Easy to Love, the couple things that are arranged in that, um, in like the same day or two because uh, I got the mm. advice um, from it was from Nick Lombardelli of saying like if you can't think of an arrangement, uh, try taking choruses and just soloing over the tune, record yourself and then lock on to your favorite ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what that whole like intro thing from Easy to Love, um, that was like just something I did while I was soloing at one point. And I was like, ah, oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a great, great, uh, great, uh, great way in. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I really just wanted to do a burning up tempo swing. And that song had been really resonating with me for a while. I wish there was more to it than that. But uh <laughs> Mm. And actually, I found out after the fact that uh, after I had already chosen to do that song and arranged it, um, I totally, I guess I knew this in my subconscious, but Camille Thurman, who if you have not heard her, oh my gosh, she is a sax player and vocalist in, in New York. She plays at Jazz at Lincoln Center a bunch. She plays at Diva. Um, one of the best jazz vocalists out there now, possibly ever. She is ridiculous. Camille Thurman. Um but she, on her album last year, I think it's called Waiting for the Sunrise. I hope I got that right. She recorded a pretty up version of Easy to Love as well. So I remember hearing that after and being like, oh, thank God our arrangements weren't similar. Because <laughs> Camille, I love you, but I don't want to steal all that stuff from you. <laughs> by, like, yeah. by accident or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, check her out, though. She is one of the best scat vocalists or jazz impro improvis uh, improvisers on voice that I've ever heard. 
I, I will definitely check her out. I see her. I see. I'm looking at the computer right now. I see uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center. and Yeah, she's I'll a great example of uh, a singer and an instrumentalist that she can play everything she sings and she can sing everything she plays. That's great. Yeah. I'm, I'm very envious of that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's <laughs> slowly working on it. <laughs> I think it, my favorite quote um, from uh, that hometown heroes thing I did was me being able to express out loud in an interview that me wanting to sing more came almost explicitly from me being frustrated, not being able to play things on trombone. It's <laughs> 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 like, screw this. I'm just going to sing it. It's fine. <laughs> Uh, um, so for the, for that single, did uh, where 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 did you record that at? Uh, that one was at Turtle Studios. Um, Sean cool. Svodlanak was the engineer on that, and Doug Rouse um, mastered it. Uh, that actually, the next single that's coming out, though, I'm curious what people think about it compared to Easy to Love because it's uh, we recorded that at Sherry's Space in Fishtown. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, so I'm I'm curious. Uh, uh, Sean did. He is a wizard. I recommend anyone yeah, work is. with him. But uh, he he did an incredible job with that space. But uh, yeah, that yeah, was at Sean, Turtle. Sean's great. Every time I go and walk into Chris's and he's there, I'm like, yes, Sean. I know. Oh my gosh, any, seriously. Any of, the guys, any, of the, any of the people at Chris's. Even every once in a while, when he's not working, he's just hanging out there. I'm like, oh yes, yeah. it's Sean. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did you? Um, how did you uh, uh, distri- distribute the? Uh, is it uh, digital only? Uh, yeah, the singles are digital only. Um, I just mm-hmm. I went through uh, CD Baby. I got the rights through the cool. Harry Fox, um, and I had never done that before. Uh, Laura Liscano mm-hmm. actually helped me a lot with that, and uh, my friend Taylor Kelly as well. Um, mm-hmm. With with how to do that, um, securing rights for things is so expensive. Yeah, it is. Oh my gosh, I it's. If I didn't, <laughs> I, if I didn't think I was gonna make money on recorded music before, wow. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's next time I record original and public domain is gonna be my friend. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. That that is actually a. Um, I had a similar situation with the with uh, my last album where I decided to. I had two recorded two songs, two standards. Mm-hmm. And I did not put them on the album because of that. Yeah, and it's it's a I'm it's going a lot. To release, um, uh, I'm sorry, you just cut out. What did you say? Oh no, I just was saying it's a lot. It's it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I'm debating. I still have those two tracks. I'm debating what to do with them because they're they're good. If you and, if you just do the digital distribution, it's. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, honestly, I haven't had to really pay. I haven't had to pay for the physical copies yet. But eh, depending on how much play you th- you're, you know, you think you're going to generate, I think streaming isn't too expensive. And you know, with what digital downloads are nowadays, I, I didn't, I, I overestimated, but you know, hopefully it won't run me out too much. Yeah, yeah, that that's kind of what I've been thinking of doing is doing uh, digital only for those. Yeah. Release it as like B sides and you know, but. That's actually a big reason why I got into writing. It was just the uh, right. like, I, I don't want to pay for that. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's I I had no idea going into making a standards album and actually the only track that I didn't I don't have to pay for on the album is the going to be the the title track I'm forever blowing bubbles because it's from 1914. Mm-hmm. But uh, nothing else made the cut. Thank God I love old music. Next time I get to <laughs> actively what is it pre 1920 now or yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there there's some options. 
<laughs> yeah, there, I feel like there's a lot of options. I feel like um actually just stumbled upon uh freescores.com. Oh. <laughs> which is which is just yeah. you know all public domain music and and you know the scores for it. So Right. Is it like IMSLP but for other genres? Yeah, it has it has uh has a lot of stuff in there. Oh, cool. Has all the classical stuff and uh there's some you know jazz stuff and just anything that's in the public domain oh that's good to know yeah i've used imslp i have not used free scores that's good to know yeah yeah um anything to keep the cost of recording down yep yeah that's um turtle was great to work with though in terms of of that and you know understanding Mm -hmm. i was self-producing and you know funding everything myself and um they were very fair it was it mm-hmm. was it was it was a doable cost for my my first album as a young musician. Very cool. Um, how how do you see just kind of like going forward? I know we we didn't really talk about too much about the the quarantine and the the state of music now, but um, how do you what do you think the future is going to be like? Oh God, for, for music or just, (laughs) I literally just saw flashes of like a post-apocalyptic wasteland in front of my eyes. (laughs) Um, Sorry, I I didn't mean uh, to, didn't mean to bring that out. (laughs) There are, (laughs) there are, you know, for, for music, I feel like there are certain things that we're establishing right now during the quarantine that are going to stay for at least a bit, if not be like a, a, um, permanent installation in the field uh in terms of things like live streaming or uh more with being able to like market yourself on digital platforms um especially i think i saw mike boone posted you know in response to there have been there's been a lot of controversy of people saying well we shouldn't be you know oversaturating the market with live streams because people won't won't go out to see live music after this is all over and you know i think boone posted it's like you know we were kind of getting a raw deal even when things were live. So we should really yeah. be learning how to adapt. Um, yeah. And that's sort of where I see things heading is I feel like there's music industry is not going to die, but it's going to change and we have to be willing to let that happen. Um, whether that's change in terms of how we deliver music to people, changes of more genres starting to blend together. I know because there's a lot of in terms of like genre purists of what is jazz and what is not, what should be played at certain clubs. And I feel like we're all going to have to be flexible and more welcoming of how, how we, how we receive and how we deliver music and genres not being um, so limiting um, to, for, you know, certain artists and venues, whether they're physical or online. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you a lot on that. That's it's, just going to change and it's kind of, I feel like it's kind of like the wild west right now it's like in a big state of flux right. but from from all the chaos and uh, and all the experimentation and you know uh, uh you know the the new frontier will will emerge and uh and uh it will go forward um, I'm yeah. very confident that you know music music's not going anywhere yeah, I mean, I'm I'm but. I'm excited that recording is more um, easily accessible than it ever and than it's ever been. That's it's crazy mm-hmm. to me that 
Um, like I just did, it'll get released soon, I think. The South Philly Big Band did a virtual big band. I did something with uh, uh, Keith Chase and the piano player, but it's mm-hmm. crazy to me, these products that people are able to get with these, you know, home recording setups. And I just have a pretty cheap interface and, you know, a, a good dynamic mic, and I'm able to send in something that can turn into a, a a pretty solid product. So I feel like home recording is going to get increasingly more important in as a, yeah. as a prerequisite skill that you need uh, going into the music industry. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I've been spending a lot of time uh, getting, getting my setup to um, um, getting my setup up and up and running. Um, um, sorry, I got a little distracted about, we were talking about your, um, uh, the future uh, your, of your the release. music industry. And um, <laughs> you, you said the next single is uh, Orange Colored Sky, and that is coming out. Um, uh, that'll be next week. Or I, I, if this is getting released w- next week from now, then I guess it'll be the current week that people are listening. <laughs> <laughs> it should be up. <laughs> Very cool. Um, and um, where, where can people find that? Uh, that'll that'll be everywhere. That'll be, you know, Apple Music. It'll it'll be up on Spotify for sp- streaming. Um whatever iTunes and all the, I clicked all of the things on CD baby. So (laughs) (laughs) you could probably find it on like ask Jeeves or something. I don't know. (laughs) Very cool. Um, did you, uh, uh, orange color sky. I'm not uh, familiar with that tune. Where is that? What is that from? Oh, that's an older standard. That's great. Um, I, I actually, that's one that I would hear my, uh, uh, my my gram and my dad sing uh, uh, when they would do their like Nat King Cole songbook stuff when I was growing up. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so it's well, I forget and I should know who wrote wrote it off the top of my head. It was a songwriting team, um, but uh, Nat King Cole popularized it, um, and it's a song that has a reputation for some for being sort of a, an older cheesy standard. So I'm hoping that it will still not be too cheesy. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm confident that uh, you you can bring it into the 21st century. Oh gosh, we'll see. <laughs> L- listen, Very listen, cool. and give me your verdict. Yeah, well, um, Haley, it's been great talking to you. Um, it's been it's been too long, and um, b- uh, before you before we uh, say goodbye, can you just tell everybody um, where? they can find you, find you and contact you or follow follow you what the best method is sure um go on my website haleybrunell.com h a i l e y b r i n n e l.com i have a list of you know shows other ways to contact me um you can find me on instagram or on facebook just by looking up haley brunell spelled the same way um yeah that's that's the best way to contact me and figure out what i'm up to well, great. Thanks for taking the time to be on the show and, uh, you know, stay safe and healthy. Of course, you too. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Voice Equals Power podcast. For me, this series is a labor of love. My goal is to help document the making of jazz history in this moment. If you have any suggestions about who you would like to hear on the show, drop me a line. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, your voice is your power.